everybody, uh, let's turn to Mark chapter 9 as we're moving through the gospel of Mark. Towards the end of chapter 9, we're past the halfway point of a wonderful gospel about how Jesus is king and what it means to follow him. And this is a, a short section of chapter 9. We'll be in verse 38 through 41. But I'll read it for us, give you a second to turn there. I'll read it for us, I'll preach it, and we'll respond um, as the Holy Spirit would have us. Here's our text for today, Mark chapter 9, verse 38 through 41. John said to him, speaking about Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Don't stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to me, Christ, will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of the Lord. I want to talk for 10, 15 seconds about second graders. There's a reason for this. It's because of this text. I noticed, because I've had at least two second graders, one of them is no longer in second grade, one is currently in second grade, that at some point, I don't know if it was second grade or first grade, or maybe before that, at some point, children develop this tribalism. I don't know where it starts. I just know at the beginning, it never started. Like when my kids were babies, they just never had this sense of like who's in and who's out. They're just little baby, like, ooh, squirrel. You know, like they would just look at things. They would be attached to it. They would goo and gah or whatever the word is. They would be like extremely excited about anything that caught their attention. At a certain point, I started noticing both my kids starting to develop like a circle of friends. It was cute. They started to form groups and stick to themselves and even begin arguing about whose stuff was better. My stuff is better. Well, I've got this. Well, my mom is awesome. Well, my mom is better than your mom. Well, I have two moms. You know, like it's just the amount of things. Like they start to stick to themselves. They start to form groups. They start to argue about whose stuff is better. And as a second grader, it's kind of cute. It's not so cute when adults continue to do that. I say all of that because this text seems to be about an adult, we'll call him John, who keeps acting like a second grader. And maybe as we go through the text, we might see as in a mirror ways that we do this too. I think if there were two questions that were being inherently asked by this text, they're who's in and who's out. The second question is whose work actually matters? Who's in and who's out? Whose work actually matters? Like a good second grader. Except this time, it's John. Look at verse 38. John said to him, speaking of Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. Now, if that, was, if that ended with a period, if that was the only part of the text, we could quit and go home right now, right? You'd be like, good testimony, good testimony. We saw someone casting out demons in your name. Comma, 
It goes on. And we tried to stop him because, listen to this, he was not following us. Not a part of our group. Not doing the things that we do. Not doing the things that we do like the things that we, uh, the, doing the things that we do in the way that we do them. We tried to stop him from doing something awesome because he was not following us. Brothers and sisters, I want to introduce you to, and what I think Mark is introducing us to, is John's elitism. Elitism, that sense of superiority that we develop to the exclusion of other people. Now, if this was the only time John did this, that would be one thing. We could chalk it up to his impulsive nature, or maybe he was feeling something in the moment, or maybe he stumbled like some of us so many, uh, so many times do. But this isn't just a one-time thing. We see a pattern of elitism in our good boy, friend, uh, our, our good boy John, our friend John. Exhibit A, Luke chapter 9, verse 54. Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem, and... He calls his disciples to go to Samaria. He says, have somebody there. Prepare a place for me so that I could stay the night. Have a good hot meal. The Samaritans reject Jesus because they know he's on the way to Jerusalem. There's a conflict between the Samaritans and the Jews. And, and John comes back. And he says to Jesus, they rejected you. Do you want me to call them? Do you want me to call fire down from heaven upon all of them? Do you want me to call fire down on all of Samaria? They rejected you. And Jesus, Jesus rebukes him, rightfully so. There's exhibit A. Exhibit B, Mark chapter 5, uh, 10, verse 35. This will come up in a few weeks. Right after Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to be arrested, and then I'm going to die. This is the third time he says it. Their immediate response. Two guys come up to Jesus, two disciples, and their immediate response after that is, when you come into your place of glory, Lord, can, can we sit on the right and left um, in your empire? <laughs> can anyone guess who one of those boys was? John. And exhibit C. John witnesses somebody doing something awesome in Jesus' name, casting out a demon. That person experiences liberty and peace in Christ Jesus. And all John can think about is, it doesn't belong to us. And he says this right after. You remember if you were here last week when uh, Pastor Stephen spoke, it was right after Jesus' call to servanthood. He said, if you want to know the true path of greatness, you got to follow me. That means becoming a servant to all. That's true leadership. That's true, um, that's true greatness. Right after that, John says, we saw somebody. They were doing something awesome, but we rejected them. And you should too because they don't belong to us. This is John's elitism. John thinks you got to be a part of his group in this moment to be acknowledged, to be validated, to be worked with. To be affirmed, it all comes down to which group you are a part of. John is obsessing over this right now. He'll be healed of it over time because you hang out with Jesus too long. You, be, you get healed of a lot of things. But right now, 
he seems to be a part of a very closed and exclusive group. You're either in or you're out. And if you're out, I'll never let you in and I'll never bless what you're doing. Sounds a lot like this small beach town I know about. You're either in or, I got an amen from somebody out there. All right, we're starting to wake up. You're either in or you're out. Santa Barbara can feel like that, right? It's hard to belong here. And yet everybody in this town wants to belong, but it's so hard to get in. And there are obstacles that you face all the time about getting in. And it doesn't matter what you want or what you need in this city. All of that is contingent upon who you're connected with. Seems like the elitism of John has not stopped in the first century. This is both the blessing and the curse of this wonderful city in which we live. The blessing is relationships really matter here. The curse is if you don't have the right ones, you might find yourself ostracized or pushed down. I want to highlight the difference between tribes and tribalism here. Tribes are not necessarily a bad thing. When I, when I speak about tribes, I mean that we, we sometimes tend to gather with people who like the same things that we do, who believe the same things that we do, who are inspired by the same things that we do. We find identity, group identity, with people of like mind. That's great. Uh, doing that reinforces the things that you are passionate about. It makes you feel less isolated and less alone. You realize, oh yeah, I believe this, and I'm a part of this wider group that also does. It kind of reinforces that. It strengthens you when you feel uh, alone. It's good to have a tribe. And we develop tribes with everything from politics to our faith to our hobbies uh, to even the way that we parent our kids. You can turn anything into a something to surround yourself with like-minded people by. Tribalism, and I'm kind of making this up to prove a point, tribalism is something altogether different. It's when we weaponize our group and use it to exclude other people. It's when we say, I will not associate with you because you believe this or do that or look a certain way, or do a certain thing. And this is very, very difficult to escape from in a city like this. In fact, I bet a bunch of us are doing it right now. How many of you, when I said elitism, you were immediately like, oh yeah, it's the Democrats. And then someone on the other side of the aisle is like, oh, Republicans for sure. And then someone else is like, I'm not any of you. I'm an independent. All of you are messed up. I alone am humble and kind. <clears throat> There's something deep down inside, speaking for myself, the worst part about me that is an elitist. And it doesn't really matter what tribe you belong to. There's something inside the human flesh wants to exclude people that are not like us. 
And the beautiful and difficult thing about the Bible is that it's like a mirror, the Apostle James would later say. It's like a mirror revealing you, the best parts and the worst parts. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says that the word of God is, is sharper than a double-edged sword. It is able to discern between the, the thoughts and intentions of your heart. You know you're an elitist when you apply that term to everybody but yourself, when I do. A true contemplative, come along to the Bible, to the words of Jesus, and ask honestly and vulnerably, how does this reveal my deepest self? Chris Lazo, how do I see John in me? Because John is attempting to answer this question, who's in and who's out? And he thinks he has an idea. It's people that don't belong to my tribe. Jesus says in verse 40, the one who is not against us is for us. Jesus makes a wide open gate, maybe a little too wide for some of us. If you're not against me, you're for me. And I want to dive a little more into that with some of the other words of Jesus. Who exactly is for Jesus? Who exactly is for us? And during the duration of the gospel, and you'll see this as we get deeper into the gospel of Mark, Jesus begins to use symbolism to describe who sits at the table with you and me. And he uses a literal table. He breaks bread and he takes the cup, something that we do maybe very casually on a Sunday morning. And he sets a meal before people, and he says, you are with me. And that food is symbolic, right? The bread and the cup, it's symbolic of his blood that was shed and his body that was broken to unite all people in him who call upon his name. And he uses a visceral, symbolic gesture, a meal, a shared table to say, you're with me. Now, I don't want you to just glaze over something that we look at all the time. I want you to examine who exactly is at his table. Let me introduce you to two or three people. Matthew, tax collector. The tax collector in the first century was typically a Jewish male who was tasked by the Roman oppressor to tax his own countrymen. Rome taxed very high but they didn't give a living wage to the tax collector. So if you were a Jewish tax collector, it was upon you to add a little extra to what Rome was asking for to learn, uh, earn a living wage. The problem was greed took, uh, settled in and it was typical for tax collectors to charge exorbitant amounts above what Rome asked for to line their pockets. So you can kind of see what a tax collector looked like in the first century to his Jewish countrymen, a traitor to the oppressing empire. He's at the table. So is Peter. Whatever Matthew the tax collector is, Peter is the absolute opposite. Peter's a ruddy, Galilean, clumsy, hardworking, violent Galilean man. He was what they would call a zealot. We might not use that term as much. We might use the term freedom fighter. He was a religious freedom fighter. 
He was armed with a sword. We see in the Gospels that he loved to use that sword, and his whole calling in life was to free Israel from the Roman oppressor. So he hated Matthew, and Matthew hated Peter. They're at the table. You might say, yeah, well, Jesus is going to change all of their lives, so, you know, take that into account. Well, not everybody. Let me introduce you to Judas. Judas would go down in history betraying Jesus Christ and killing himself. He's at the table. This is a picture of the type of people that Jesus invites to a meal. People who ordinarily would hate each other because of what they look like, because of what they stand for, because of how they behave, because of what they believe in. That's what this means. I wish I had like a really nice loaf of bread, but this is what I got. This is what that means. Every time we take this on a Sunday, we are recalibrating the scripts the world has given us about who's in and who's out. We're saying Jesus Christ has brought me into the fold with people I ordinarily would have hated. That's what Jesus does. The commonality is in Jesus. How beautiful would it be if this season was marked by us, not by who we were against, but by who we were with? How beautiful would 2022 be if we just practiced more meals together? I'll just leave that out there. That's the first question. Who's in and who's out? Jesus says, who's, who's ever, whoever's with me. Question number two, whose work actually matters? Whose work actually matters? Verse 39 through 40, Jesus said, don't stop that guy. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. I want to pause on a couple words in this text for a minute. One is, what is a mighty work? Jesus basically says, uh, like, we don't even know who this guy is that cast out the demon. We don't know exactly what he said or what he did. We don't know if he's a disciple, a Christian, a non-Christian. We don't know any of that stuff. We just know he did something awesome. And Jesus says, he did a mighty work in my name. No, he, he, he's not going to speak evil about me for long. What constitutes a mighty work? Well, in this case, it's literally casting out a demon expelling a demon by the great power of Jesus Christ. You might be doing that in your life. I think that's also a bigger picture of what God is doing in the world. The casting out of demons is a sign and a picture of the renewing work of the kingdom of God setting down in our spheres of influence. Jesus is saying, anyone who's a part of this renewing work of the kingdom of God Bring him to the table. But it's not just any good work. I want you to highlight this line. Whoever does a mighty work in my name. Ooh, this is special, he says. What do you think of when you hear in the name of Jesus? When I was a kid, I thought that was just like the period at the end of a prayer, right? Blah, 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 blah. I want this toy for Christmas in the name of Jesus. Amen. I thought it was just like the way you ended a prayer. Or maybe it was a mantra, like nothing I pray for will come to pass unless I say it in Jesus' name. It was almost superstitious in a sense. 
And there's nothing wrong with praying in the name of Jesus, literally, but what does it mean? Oh, in the first century, uh, the theologian Dallas Willard puts it this way. He says, speaking about someone's name referred to, their re- to the reality of who that person was. It referred to their character and their attributes. So far as meaning that when you did something in the name of another person, you were representing what they were all about. What's that mean? Maybe if I can give you an example, you can kind of step into this. Um, I think Charlie, Charlie usually is in the back. He does a sound for us. I remember years ago, we were at the high school setting up and tearing down, and I was wrapping cables back when we had to tear everything down every Sunday. And... Charlie came up to me, and he said, he gave me like this lesson in wrapping cables. Turns out I was wrapping them wrong. And there's a whole dynamic to a cable. There's like a way that it sits, and if you wrap it wrong, you could ruin the cable. In the past, sound engineers uh, would look at me or look at someone doing that and just be like, you're doing it wrong! Charlie like walked up to me, and he was like, hey, and he explained how a cable works. And he was like, bro, so did you know when you wrap it this way, it does this? If you wrap it that way, it does it this way. And it, I know this sounds silly. It's such a small example, but it was so disarming. that I was like, oh, that's, that's great to learn. Normally, I might get defensive, but the way that Charlie approached me was so disarming and kind and pastoral that I was eager to learn. Now, fast forward to Saturday at Gersh Park where kids are playing soccer and I see a kid doing something um, that isn't right. Maybe in the past I would have been like, you're doing it wrong! But in that moment, I might recall the effect that my friend Charlie had on me. and be like, be like, the way that he approached me was so gentle and so kind and so disarming I wonder if I could bring that into the sphere. And then I taught that kid, hey, if you want to kick that ball harder, you got to use your laces. You can do that by doing this, so on and so forth. And they go off and score a goal. What just happened there? I just taught that kid in the name of Charlie. We don't use that terminology because it's super weird, right? <laughs> but if we were to cross over from the first century, that's, that's essentially what we're doing. If I were to instead hide because I'm tired from a long week um, in my corner of the world and I recalled, what would would Pastor G do? He'd He'd start loving on people who he just had eyes to see. I would be doing something in the name of Pastor G, so on and so forth. So what does it mean to do something in the name of Jesus? It means that in that moment, you are recalling the way that he does things for the reason that he does things, for the end goal that he does things. And in that moment, you might feel inspired to do the same thing. You are doing something in the name of Jesus. Here's what I want you to do this week. Read your Bible, and every time you come across in the name of Jesus, I want you to 
see how that passage changes in light of that. Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. What's that mean? Does that mean when we dunk them in the ocean, we're supposed to say in the Father's, uh, name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Not necessarily, even though I'll still do that because it's fun. It literally means when you disciple people, which we all are too, you are to disciple people by immersing them. That's what baptized means, that original Greek word, baptizo, immerse them in the reality of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. How do you do that? By teaching them to observe the words that Jesus has spoken, right? So when Jesus says, no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon be able afterwards to speak evil of me, what's that mean? It means when people are doing good things out of inspiration by Jesus, that's really special. Don't make light of that. And whether this person is a believer or not, Jesus seems to say, one, they're going to know about me eventually. No one who does a mighty work in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me. And two, verse 40, they're doing the same work as us. For the one who is not against us is for us. Don't hinder people who are doing good, renewing work because they're not a part of your tribe or because they're not Christians. Just do good work. Create beauty. Be a part of wonderful things. There's enough vitriol and frustration and despair in this world. Find something good to be a part of. Now, I think this digs up a deeper question that some of us might be asking. Am I doing a mighty work in his name? Some of you might be asking, does my work matter? I can see how casting out a demon in the name of Jesus counts. I don't often get that opportunity over at Procore, but how is my work significant? I'm a nurse, I'm an accountant. How does my work matter? How does my work tie into God's work? How does my work constitute a work in Jesus' name? I don't think the problem for us, like John, is necessarily, in, at least in Santa Barbara, so much that we're bickering with other churches. I think one of the main things that a lot of people here struggle with, from what I hear in this text, is our struggle to connect our work with God's work. Is my work in his name? And I think this affects how we see our workplace, how we see our families, how we see our companies, how we see our employers, how we see our employees, how we see our jobs, how we see our school, how we see our neighborhood. And I want to argue that perhaps... It's because we lack an ima a little imagination that maybe the only way we think somebody is in Jesus' name is if it's a church class, a missionary endeavor, a sermon from this podium, or some kind of ministry event. Only if we're doing things that are churchy and they constitute mission and work in God's name. And look, sure, if being effective for God just means preaching sermons, then yeah, we should all quit our jobs and become pastors of preaching and vision. 
I'll take reality, you can start reality renovation, and you can start reality restoration hardware church, and you can start, you know, renewal Santa Barbara, if that's all there is to effective mission, but it's not. That's one tiny part of what we've been called to. Do you know what Paul said in Ephesians chapter one about God's plan for the cosmos? I'm gonna put it on screen. He said, God is making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. God has a purpose for the whole cosmos, for the whole world. And he set it forth in Jesus Christ. What is his purpose? What is his why? What is his reason? What is God's heartbeat? And what, what, what causes him proverbially to wake up in the morning? He doesn't sleep, but if he did, listen to this. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God lives for this. And the gospel is the good news because it is the good news that this plan has become available and accessible and even near to us in this guy named Jesus Christ. When Jesus came in on the scene, he waltzed into a synagogue and he picked out a parchment, a paper. He didn't pick up the New York Times. He didn't pick up Chris Laws' opinion. He wasn't on Reddit and he wasn't looking at social media. He picked up the book of Isaiah and he read from a passage that said this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He sets it down and he says, today, everything you just heard has been accomplished in your hearing. I'm the guy. Jesus has come to renew and to restore and to unite all things in him. So what does faithful Christianity look like for you? Doing mighty work in his name happens every time we proclaim that. Every time we put that on display. Every time we show people what that looks like, every time we invite others into what it is, every time we celebrate those pockets of God's activity among us, we are being on mission in the name of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? In Jesus' name. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Brothers and sisters, can we even just try together to stop depending on one charismatic leader to do great works in Jesus' name on our behalf? God has given that to you. God has given that to you. That means wherever you are and whatever you're doing, the Holy Spirit has anointed you to walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. You say, but I'm a nurse, I don't know what that looks like. Are you spreading beauty in your community? Are you pushing back the darkness in your own way? Are you fixing what has been broken? Are you spreading truth? Are you renewing what is before you? Are you making something better? Are you solving a problem? God has sent you there for that. 
and his mission to unite all things in himself. I think there's a call on someone's life here to be a software engineer in the name of Jesus Christ. I think there's a calling on someone's life here to be a customer service representative in the name of Christ. An HR director, a marketing manager, a second grade teacher, please, Lord. A city council member, a soccer player, a sommelier, an electrician, a stay-at-home mom, a stay-at-home dad. I think there's a call on someone's life here to be a nurse in the name of Jesus Christ, a college student, a valet, an Uber driver, a CPA, a lawyer. I don't care what it is. God has called you to be a minister in only a way that he's chosen you to do so. I don't have time to talk about how each of these roles specifically might be a part of God's renewal of the earth. If you want to dive deeper into it, listen to the sermon I gave in, on February 3rd, 2019 called Work. But right now, I just want my friends who are looking at me up here with a microphone to begin refusing to believe the lie that your work is insignificant because you, belong, you don't belong to a certain group of people doing certain things. You've been called by God to do the things that God does in the space that he's brought you. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Time to do some walking together. You were made for this. Question one, who's in and who's out? Question two, whose work matters? Better question, Jesus' question, whose side are you on? For truly I say to you, Jesus says, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to me will by no means lose his reward. Do you belong to Jesus? That is enough. It's enough to transform a religious zealot like Peter and a nasty corporate bureaucrat like Matthew would have transformed Judas too if he was open to it. Are you open to it? It's enough. And ask Joseph, Andrea, and Mandy to come up here as we respond in song. And I just want you to end on this idea that Jesus basically says, don't fight other people or stop them. Just give them a glass of water. I wonder what this is gonna look like in the year to come. Bunch of Christians just trying to find their way in a couple of years that's been maybe the hardest couple of years of our lives. In a world where we argue about everything from vaccines to politics to masks to race to what Christians are being more faithful than others. My question today is what does a cup of water look like in this cultural moment for you and me? What does a cup of water look like? Perhaps you need one. Perhaps you need to give one. Maybe that cup of water is literal. Maybe it's figurative. I don't know. But Jesus is calling us forward to do mighty works in his name, not to retreat, to be afraid. And I think that's tremendously hopeful. Our hope is not in each other nor is it in reality Santa Barbara. It certainly isn't in Santa Barbara itself. 
Our hope is in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose again. And every Sunday reminds us with a tiny little capsule of bread and juice, this is what matters. Remember what matters. You're at the table. Heavenly Father, may you work on our hearts and minds and heal us where we need healing. May you set us free where we need liberation. And may you commission us where we feel timid. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but the spirit of power and a sound mind. There's carpets at the front. There are prayer teams in the back. There's communion to the right and left and also the same outside for those of you joining us in the parking lot and at home. Let's spend some time with Jesus and each other.